today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, decision by the Canadian government to pursue foreign investment protection uh, agreement with Taiwan amid its ongoing tensions with uh, mainland China has been greeted actually with widespread approval in trade and diplomatic circles, at least in this country anyway. Uh, International Trade Minister Mary Ng announced that Canada's intention now is is, uh, to actually develop these sorts of relationships. Uh, She said the island represented a key trade and investment partner as Canada tries to diversify its trade relationships in the Indo-Pacific area. Interesting turn of phrase there. Joining us to talk about this and the implications is uh, Dr. Robert Hewish. Dr. Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Always good to talk to you, Bill. Thanks very much. You know, when when you hear somebody like Minister Ng here saying that uh, we want to diversify our trade relations in Indo-Pacific, in other words, uh, not just China, is is that the inferred uh, message here that uh, that we can get along without these guys, or we have to broaden our, our perspective here? Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're hearing. Uh, the the message is clear from the relationships between China and the Canadian government, especially over the last four years, well, the entire time of the Trudeau government, that that ship is sinking in terms of a healthy relationship that can prosper on both sides. And the the diversity that we're seeking out here uh, is definitely to get away from some of the major exporting that Canada relies on to to China and to find new partners abroad. Now, the the focus on the Pacific, Asia and the Pacific, in that way is particularly important because Canada is a member of uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Organization. So there's all sorts of potential for agreements for very quick trade deals to come about. Now, the other thing here is there's a lot of um, kind of chess pieces being moved in that region as well uh, with China and the United States. And now Canada, of course, would be on, on board with the United States to try to get partners and strategic partners in the area. Uh, places like the Philippines have had some serious tensions with the Chinese government over the past uh, well, d- dozen years or so. But more to the point is that there's some very strategic interests also in the outlying Pacific region. So just if you imagine we'll go north of Australia and then east of Australia by about a good uh, six hours on a jet plane, and you're getting into countries like Fiji and some of the smaller Pacific Island states that are strategically important for China's uh, naval and uh, expansion projects into the future. So this is a very strategic uh, play, I think, right now for the government. But maybe not without peril. I, you know, when you look at all these places you just mentioned here, though, Professor, uh, these are all things that China's going to say, well, that's our backyard. Uh, you know, we, we have purview over this whole area. What do you guys think you're doing? And what's what? And it's exactly what's happened already. So uh, to give you one example of this, uh, think about the, the, the small country called uh, Kiribati. Now, Kiribati is spelled Kiribati, is how we would pronounce it. And it's about a good three-hour flight away from Fiji. It's actually one of the countries that is right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's in all four hemispheres. Now, traditionally, Kiribati has had a relationship with Australia and Taiwan to, to get foreign aid in there. But recently, China has signed a deal with the new president there to, to say, look, we'll come in with this new aid package, uh, but we would like to take one of your islands uh, and turn it into a massive runway. So basically, it would involve relocation of people off the island. So you'd have this huge runway in the middle of the Pacific for uh, Chinese Naval and Air Force. Now, that's a big deal because places like 
Kiribati, even though they're small in terms of land, they're massive in terms of sea territory. Uh, and they don't have the populations to actually explore and develop that, but China sure does. Huge fishing fleets, huge naval capacity, and uh, this would be pressing up against some of the other naval interests that the U.S. has in the region as well. So to your point, Bill, I think what we're going to see is that as, as Canada goes out and tries to make friends in this region, China will be right there providing sweeter incentives for uh, for smaller countries to stay on the Team China side. Well, that's going to be, I, I agree, part of the strategy here. So in other words, uh, you know, that's the carrot over there mm-hmm. for those small islands you talked about. Uh, but we've seen in recent history, they use the stick against us. Uh, you know, in other words, they, they want to punish countries like Canada for even trying to, to, to make some sort of inroads into places like this. Oh, that's exactly right. It's something that I think you and I have talked about in the past uh, that uh, it can be referred to as punching bag diplomacy. It's something where uh, if China's got a problem with the United States, they're not going to directly uh, put pressure on Washington. Uh, they, they may talk some some political strong words. They may might be a small economic disruption, but the real pressure is going to be put on allies of the United States, which, of course, are Canada and Australia. Uh, We've felt that in many ways over the past 10 years, as have the Australians. And the key to this, the sort of underlying link as to why is China sort of uh, speaking poorly about Canada and Australia, those two. Well, if we look at where the money goes on this, uh, despite all of the, the growth and expansion in China, it is still incredibly dependent on one major imported resource, and that is iron. Uh, that is, uh, you know, the, the, the iron ore that uh, that is produced, and Hamilton has a history of that, as we know, uh, that... China needs 80% of its iron ore comes from outside of the country. And where are the, the mining companies that control that? Well, they're in Australia and Canada. So if, uh, if China's not getting a good deal uh, in that area, they will start putting pressure on, on those countries in particular. And if we're talking about expansion uh, of China, its influence in the Pacific and other parts of, of Asia, it needs steel. And that's still the one resource that it is uh, fragile about getting access to because it just doesn't have enough within its own boundaries. Let's, let's talk about trading alliances, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, some of the alliances that are already existing, there is one called the Pacific uh, Trade Pact, known as the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Canada is already in that, aren't they? They are. They are. And it's something that Canada's been, um, so we say, under-participating in. In, in the past few years, it's something where uh, our, our attention has been elsewhere, but the, we are part of it. We are seen as part of the Pacific nation, and, uh, and that allows a lot of opportunities uh, down the road. China is not part of that. Uh, neither is Taiwan, yeah. for that matter. I guess both have applied. Uh, what, what kind of role is Canada going to play in a situation like this? I mean, at some point, there's going to have to be an evaluation as to whether or not they're going to allow these in here. Do they allow, allow both in there? Uh, and how does Canada try to handle something like this uh, with uh, the knowledge that there could be some ramifications, political or otherwise, if they if they they come down on the wrong side of this? Yeah. And, and this is what's going to be really tricky is we're, we're going to see the, the, the Pacific Agreement there begin to to get tense uh, in the sense that, you know, China is more than willing to really offer up the goods for members of, of the Pacific uh, to, to, to come on board. And if Canada can't come in with, with a sweetened deal to, to challenge that, member states are, are, are going to say, well, what's the point? Uh, it, it's also something to consider that we, we've 
seen that uh, that recently when there's been conflict between China and Canada that uh, Canada has just not come out on top uh, in, in in many ways it wasn't uh, until the the political turmoil with the Michaels was solved only after we we sort of settled the, the Huawei thing uh, with with Mei Zhou. And with what that says internationally is that the, the cards are still going to fall uh, on China's side. So if you're a smaller nation in the Pacific and you have a choice between joining Team Canada or Team China for your economic and, and political strategies, uh, there may be more incentive to join the one that is is currently throwing its weight around in the world and succeeding, rather than uh, the country that is struggling right now to to punch above its weight as as sort of that advocate for for democratic values and economic uh, participation. Well, isn't this an avenue for China to to flex its muscle? I think you and I have talked about this in past discussions, mm-hmm. uh, both militarily and otherwise. They're trying to show the world once again that hey, this is our backyard, uh, and and nothing goes along here without our our blessing. Yeah. And and what's very interesting about that is we've seen that that's been the moves by the government itself, uh, by, by the Chinese military, by Beijing. But what we're seeing also more in terms of kind of throwing the weight around is where China is choosing to apply pressure to people who maybe don't even disagree with the opportunities of, of doing trade and cooperation there, but are just calling out issues. If it's uh, environmental pollution or if it's human rights issues, we've seen more and more that that there's been a, a risk of consequence uh, by uh, by the, either the government or by nationalists within China who are putting pressure on uh, what we've seen recently uh, human rights organizations uh, who who've, who've questioned their 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 role. Uh, we've seen hacker attacks. Just to be frank about it, uh, it doesn't surprise me that this is occurring now. Uh, that. We, we've seen that uh, ransomware attacks have come out. And right now there's more and more of these sort of self-organized uh, groups within China that are starting these these hacker um, hacker attacks on uh, organizations around the world, if it's in Canada, Singapore, or Australia. And, and that's just one kind of another warning shot. Like we've got our plan uh, in Beijing and we're not open to critique about this. So if you critique us, we will find ways to make it difficult for you. And if that is uh, sort of escalated militarily, or if it's through this sort of on the side pressure from hacker groups going at, uh, at human rights agencies around the world. Are we ready for that? And, and your, your point's well taken because I know that there are a number of advocates in this country uh, that mm-hmm. are that are very vocal in their opposition to, for instance, the treatment of the Uyghurs and 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 a number of other initiatives. Of course, human rights issues. Uh, they're individually being targeted right now, uh, as you say, with cyber attacks and a number of other things that have gone on right now. I'm getting the sense from some of the reporting I've seen on this, Professor, that uh, Canadian officials, including the RCMP, don't really know what to do about this. No, no, it's it's sort of your it's the Wild West uh, with with taking care of yourself. If you're going to be online uh, and trying to muster up support, uh, political support or financial support for uh, human rights or environmental issues that re- that involve China. It's uh, it's something where there's again, it's not always the government who's doing this. It, it can be members of the party, these sort of nationalist uh, enthusiasts 
who are taking the time to to scour media, to scour uh, regions, to to figure out who's saying what about these issues, and then find ways to put pressure on them. And in terms of what can Canada do, uh, what can the RCMP do if uh, an organization or an individual is subjected to a cyber attack? Well, the answer is very little, unless the the perpetrator of that attack did it on Canadian soil or they are themselves a Canadian citizen. Otherwise, it's it's free range. And the best advice that the, the government of Canada is giving out right now, right, right now is to keep your uh, cyber hygiene as clean as possible. Uh, make sure you're using a, you know, anti, um, anti-spyware that you're working behind a firewall. That's it. And that's not really reassuring. No, especially, as you say, because the scope of these uh, these attacks could, uh, not just on individuals, but we've already talked about influence on elections and things of this nature as well. Yeah, i got a couple of minutes left. I want to circle back to Taiwan, if I could, Professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we know, Taiwan is a self-governing uh, country, uh, but the Chinese government does claim that it's really just part of the country. And they, they seem to, in the past, anyway, have said, okay, you guys go ahead and play your little game of self-government as, as long as you don't do anything that angers us. This is starting to anger them. Uh, when they start mm-hmm. cutting side deals with trade for with things like Canada, especially when it comes into science and technology, which the Chinese, again, tend to think is within their purview, uh, is there concern about pushback, not just against Canada, but against Taiwan? I mean, they've already tried to flex their political and military muscle against Taiwan. Is this going to accelerate that? Yeah, very much so. And like you said, with technology, that is really the issue because... Uh, as much as, as I mentioned earlier, that China's vulnerability is, is iron ore imports to, to, to make steel and process steel. The other weak spot right now, uh, that it's facing is that of, of microchips and, and semiconductors. And that is something that we're all kind of a bit delayed right now with the supply chain issues. But the, where that technology is produced and, and, and sent out is in Taiwan. So. That technology is something that China desperately wants, and it's something that can't be uh, reproduced to the same level that the, the manufacturing in in Taiwan. So once again, it's something where the, the the growing power of China has found its weakness and its link. It needs an item, it needs a resource, and it will start to strategize ways to acquire that that resource. And the timeline we're kind of looking at right now uh, is what's some uh, some experts in the states have said is probably by 2024, uh, 2025. So basically, the next U.S. presidential election around that time, we're we're going to see some real heat uh, starting to build up over over tensions between China and Taiwan. And it's one where, if we think about it down the road, where it may force the hand of the United States to say, "Are we going to come in and stick up for Taiwan if there's any sort of aggression?" And if uh, if there is aggression and the U.S. fails to act, then that's it. It's it's sort of the uh, the, the the risk piece has fallen. The uh, like as in the board game, it's 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 going to be a very new organization of that map at that time, uh, because the only thing that's really keeping uh, Taiwan. Uh, away from Chinese influence militarily is the promise of of U.S. support, uh, and who knows where that's going to be in two to four years. But is this an inevitable collision course? I mean, you know, and you talked, for instance, for instance about the, the technology available here, uh, and, and Taiwan has put that on the table in the discussions with Canada. That's what we've been told so far anyway, but these potential trade deals. Uh, the Chinese I, I could well step in and simply say, that's our intellectual property. That's not yours to, to deal. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's going to bring this to a crisis point, I would think. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, when you see these conflicts in the horizon, uh, there's always a question of it's inevitable. And one of the things I always try to keep in mind is 
uh, war or any sort of conflict is usually profitable to somebody. Somebody makes money off of this. Uh, and, and we can, we can go back in the rear view mirror and, and look at Iraq and, and the purpose of oil back at the time. Yeah. But with this, with these resources that China's vulnerable to, and, and again, those are the two, the technology and the, and the steel, that as long as there's some level of access coming into the place, uh, and there's no prohibition or hard restriction of it, then you can still have dialogue and they'll still be boistering. But if those resources start to dry up uh, in terms of the volume that's demanded in China, then you're going to see aggression. And, and that's something right now that we've got to be very conscious about because there's only a very, like there's only a couple companies who are making these sort of processors and semiconductors, just as there's only three major iron ore uh, consortiums that are actually supplying those resources to China. So we're looking at very, very limited corporate gateways that are backed by kind of intermediate states. And that's a, that's a real geopolitical puzzle piece to, to try to dance around. Well, especially because you've got both the Canadian government and frankly, the US government under the Biden administration that have made strong commitments to electronic vehicles over the next little while. Well, a lot of the components mm -hmm. that they're talking about are, are, are right there in Taiwan. I mean, that's that that trade deal is essential if these two governments want to carry through with the promises they've made about EVs and, and environmental projects going forward. And and China's got to be aware of that as well. It's it's a huge bargaining chip here, isn't it? percent that's it we're we're now in a in a push where many countries uh the us as you said is, is one of them that is making this commitment towards the e-vehicles and you know domestic production in the us for that but we're going to see a big transformation of what's on our roads in the next the next 10 years and uh, unless there's sort of a greater market uh of that technology uh then it's going to be the commodity that people will go after and for a growing, uh, you know, a growing country like China that has these sort of outward expansion plans, that is the sweetest resource of all. That's it's, it's something that uh, they know is valuable to the West. They know that it's valuable to their own markets. And, and without that technology secured, uh, it, it creates that vulnerability. And, and when countries are vulnerable, that's when they get panicky. And that's when silly decisions get made. I got about a minute left here. Are, are we going into this, meaning the Canadian government and Canadian officials with their eyes wide open about the possible implications? Oh, no. Uh, I think uh, I think there's there's two things that the Canadian government needs to keep in mind. And, and first off, that any sort of uh, hard talk through diplomatic channels against China, China will quickly dismiss. Uh, what's their line right now that, oh, you misinterpreted what we meant. So it's it's kind of dismissive. It's pretty arrogant for the, the, the government in Beijing to to respond to these diplomatic dialogues in this way. Uh, the second thing is, is we're, we're, we're seeing that really what's driving conflict uh, in that tension has got to come down to some financial, some financial issues. And, and the fact that the former Canada's former ambassador to China is now taking over the head of a, a major mining consortium, which the Chinese government depends on. I think there's going to be a lot more questions coming forward about the role of that new uh, new CEO coming in, uh, Mr. Barton, to to Rio Tinto, and the the the, the effect that's going to have on China. Uh, so there's 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 some hard talk, but there's really it's the economics behind it that's that's driving this. Yeah, and a lot of questions, including why was Barton even given the job in China in the first place, and what the implications yep. of that too. So uh, it's going to be a fascinating year, uh, Professor. Always a, a pleasure to get you on here to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for the chance to talk. 
Take care. Dr. Robert Hewish, of course, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University out in the East Coast. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.